Today is Wednesday. It is August 2nd, 2023. And it's 2.35 in the afternoon. Hi, this is John Williams. This is the Mincing Rascals podcast. And portions of this will be broadcast Saturday night at 8 o'clock on WGN Radio. Listen for me weekdays on WGN from 10 to 2. I'm Austin Berg from the Illinois Policy Institute. And you can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. And we are two today, Austin. Our panel on this, a day that has a lot of potential good grist for a conversation, is you and me, Eric Zorn and the company, are all tied up doing what they do for a living, and you are actually moving today. So That's right. I deserve an award. <laughs> or maybe a break from packing boxes. You guys are doing the that move on the your break. own, huh? Yeah, we are doing it on our own. My wife is doing double duty right now. Um, if you want to spend $10,000, you can have somebody do that for you, you know. I've heard that. Joining us today, though, is Mike Leonard with Leonard Trial Lawyers. You have heard him on WGN Radio as a guest a number of times. He practices in federal courts. He does uh, whistleblower, employment law, commercial litigation. Mike, thanks for giving us some of your thoughts today. Welcome to the Mincing Rascals podcast. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me in. And I remember the battle days that Austin's going through where you're moving across the city, maybe even carrying a mattress on your roof with your arm. So uh, I don't miss those days at all. It's tantalizingly easy to do it on your own. And it's such a bitch that you just assume have somebody else do it. But then you don't want to pay that money. Right, Austin? Yeah, exactly. And just the timing of it, too. We're kind of we're, we're kind of moving some of the stuff at different times. And it's easier to just say, hey, we're going to do this. Not a ton of furniture we have to move. So it's just yeah. a lot of boxes. It's a lot of time. But isn't it interesting then? And then you say, well, we can do that. We'll just put everything in boxes moved. And then you Easy. realize you have to touch and move every physical thing you own. Think about that. Paper clips, mattresses, it, it's all on you now, my friend. Yeah, things you didn't even thought think that you owned uh, turn up. And yeah, I think we've gotten rid, I've gotten rid of probably a third of my clothes in the last two days. Yeah. Great services. If people look up something easy to do, if you're concerned about uh, uh, migrants in Chicago, a lot of families need clothes. So we found there's a great family on uh, Broadway that we were connected with. It goes to a good place. So anyone else who has clothes that they can donate, those are those are needed. I want to talk about the Trump indictment here, but I just wanted to share with you this anecdote. So yesterday I was on Ohio Street downtown. I was getting a haircut and I was walking to and from the place. A van pulled up. Some Venezuelans knew to meet the van there. The woman opened up the back of it. She had boxes of clothes that were in really good shape. Maybe 50 people, young families, toddlers to teenagers to young parents. And she'd hold up a garment and somebody would go, yeah, I can use that. And I don't know who was doing this or how, but boy, were they appreciative. In its 45-page four-count indictment of Donald Trump, the Justice Department, lays out its case that the former president conspired with others to overturn the results of the last election and to then, having failed to do that, obstruct the very certification of the election itself. Rudy Giuliani, attorneys John Eastman and Sidney Powell and others are likely the unnamed co-conspirators. So if you're keeping score, Georgia is still a work in progress. Charges have now been filed in the January 6th insurrection, not so much for the insurrection itself, but the conspiracy leading up to it. And trial dates have been set in the classified documents case and the criminal hush money and cover up with Stormy Daniels. At the same time, Donald Trump is the runaway winner in the primary polling among likely Republican voters. 
Mike, thank you for joining us on the Mincing Rascals podcast. What jumps out at you at first blush on this case? Well, I think it's a, the indictment is a really nice piece of advocacy. You know, usually in federal court cases, prosecutors are very slim on facts and details. That's typically how they do it. And as a defense lawyer, you get really just the bare bone allegations. But obviously, Mr. Smith and company knew this would be a document to be well read by everyone around the country and around the world. So I think he did a really nice job of being very fact specific. And he also did some nice touches where up front, he sort of addressed and tried to debunk the idea that he was trampling on former President Trump's rights to engage in free speech. So I thought it was a pretty persuasive piece of work, especially in light of the fact that he really got into the into the depths of conversations, memos, particularized statements made by the president. And you don't normally get that in a federal indictment. Give me an example of something that we learned from this that you thought was representative of what you just said. What I kind of enjoyed most, I think, was I hadn't heard this before, but I think they called it the Pence factor, uh, meaning that, hey, if our different wild cards don't work, now now we got the Mike Pence card to play. I had never heard that one. I, obviously, we knew that they were trying to target Pence to persuade him to do what they thought was the right thing. But I didn't know it was sort of this code like, hey, we got the we got the Pence factor. But really throughout, there's great just direct statements by Trump to various individuals. I mean, there's there's dozens of them. And typically you don't have that. And I think it also reflects, you know, his continuing lack of sophistication. Uh, as we know, most political operators, including elective officials, aren't usually that stupid, I would say, to put their words on paper and to make direct statements to others that are easily traceable. So I think that is really difficult for him to defend against. It's surprising to me how many of the things in the indictment we had heard, we had seen, we read the tweets, we saw him say it live on TV. And at the time, I thought that's Donald Trump being Donald Trump. But what this indictment says is those things that we witnessed were crimes. They, you know, they weren't just being a bad sport. That was what, by virtue of this indictment is, at least allegedly, a criminal act to impede the lawful transfer of power. But it seems like a lot of times when an indictment surfaces, you read and go, oh, wow, look, I didn't know that, or, or look how they were scheming. Some of this is new information, and some of it is not all that revelatory at all. It's like, yeah, I saw that. Uh, what do you know? They're going to charge him with a criminal act for saying Mike Pence needs to do the right thing here. Well, I would agree. I, I think that some of the stuff is not new, but I think what the indictment did a good job of is pulling back the pulling back the curtain because we all knew about a lot of these statements and we thought, oh, that's just Trump being Trump. But when you contextualize it and see that behind the scenes, he's talking to the acting attorney general, he's talking to this attorney, he's talking to this political official, and it much more, in my mind, smacks of a conspiracy because it's not just Trump being Trump. There's so much more going on behind the scenes to set the table for the conspiracy. And then his public statements just seem like, oh, that's just Donald you know, spouting off. But it's, it's much more than that in terms of my reading of this document. Well, they do mention that. I just want to read a sentence here. These claims that the president made about having not lost the election and the defendant knew that they were false. In fact, the defendant was notified repeatedly that his claims were untrue, often by the people on whom he relied 
for candid advice on important matters and who were best positioned to know the facts, and he deliberately disregarded the truth. For instance, and then they mention Mike Pence told him he lost. Senior leaders of the Justice Department told him he lost. The Director of National Intelligence, the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, senior White House attorneys, state and federal courts he lost in court, state legislators and officials told him. The guy in Arizona, a red rock, bedrock Republican, said no, he lost. Senior staffers on his campaign, his son-in-law told him he lost. So uh, National Review, who were kind of the original never-Trumpers on the right, had a piece uh, called This Trump Indictment Shouldn't Stand. And I bring it up only because the same editorial board was actually quite favorable to the indictment related to the retention of classified documents, but this indictment much more skeptical. And their argument essentially boiled down to, listen, all these things you just said, John, those constitute probably grounds for impeachment. And there's a certain impeachment process that you can go through. But saying that they constitute criminal fraud is going to be very, very difficult to prove. And it's not clear in their eyes that Smith has really alleged anything that the law forbids. Uh, It's more just, uh, you know, relating Trump's deceptions in detail uh, to the general public. So I was curious, Mike, in in your eyes, this broad theory of conspiracy to defraud the United States, what law do you think is actually being violated here? And how are they going to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that that Trump really knew that that the election wasn't stolen? Yeah, I I think it's achievable. I mean, they've pled these conspiracies. First of all, it's great for federal prosecutors to plead a conspiracy versus the completed act, right? Because you just have to show that one or more people join, they have an unlawful purpose, and they take an overt act in furtherance of that, which is is not hard, obviously. But I get I get your point. But I think when you go to the lengths of, if it's true, setting up false slates of electors, I mean, I think that is a pretty straightforward argument to interfering with a federal government function or a federal government pr- proceeding. So I don't know that I would agree that it's going to be so hard to persuade people beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, the average juror will hear all of this evidence. There's so much. Uh, and, you know, you may think some of it's garbage, some of it's not really relevant, some of it's surplusage. Uh, and then at the end of the trial, you know, they're not going to be debating whether they think the law should be on the books They'll be told by the prosecution, look, it's brought under the statute. Here are the three elements we have to meet, and here's how we met them. So I guess I would disagree that it's such a monumental uh, pull to get a conviction in this case, especially in the jurisdiction they're in. But I think the strongest factor will be the jury pool. And you get you get one Trumper who's not going to back down. And you have a hung jury, you have a mistrial, you're never going to get a conviction. So I think that's the most practical issue uh, facing the prosecution team. Repeat those three elements that you need. So for any conspiracy, you have to have, you know, one or more persons agree to commit an unlawful act and then take an overt action in furtherance of that act. That's in general for a conspiracy. And then in this case, that that sort of elemental approach is layered on the statutes that they're violating, which is interference with a governmental function or interference with a federal proceeding, which the January 6th 
uh, whatever we'll call it, convocation gathering to certify the election as a governmental proceeding. And the governmental function, which is the other statute, is the function of certifying essentially the election results, that, that process. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's going to be all sorts of defenses raised. I think the opening salvo by the Trump team on TV, I don't think was a particularly strong first stab at it. I mean, they basically went with First Amendment, which, yeah, you can say a lot of things, but that's very different than conspiring with someone to do something that's illegal. So I think they need to come up with a stronger public defense other than just its First Amendment. Austin, I think your point is interesting, though, that it certainly is the sort of thing that you can imagine you would impeach a president for. Well, I think that's actually pretty clear. And that's what I thought was interesting about this National Review piece is that I think they were in favor of impeachment because there's not a lot of doubt in that process that there was he conspired to interfere with the peaceful transition of power. But what Mike is saying, which what the indictment is saying is that but to prevail, you have to prove that Trump had an intent to defraud or to make false statements, really. So, in other words, it's a really kind of, if, if you're just reading it at face value and you're not totally, uh, you know, looking at this stuff every day, if if he were to urge a government official to overturn election results based on a good faith belief that serious fraud had altered the results, he would not be violating state law or state law, federal law, right? So, it's this interesting case of, you know, you have to prove what was in his his mind when he was doing this. And that does seem very hard. Uh, that seems very difficult. But I thought that say he truly believed that he won the election. Mike, is that a defense in this case? Uh, my understanding is it is not. If he actually believed the things he was saying, that there really was fraud. I mean, the steps that they took, the overt acts, so to speak, are things like, making false statements to legislative officials in various states. You know, for example, they gave some pretty detailed so-called evidence, you know, at this stage about Arizona and Michigan, where they're intentionally making false statements to those elected officials to try to get them to either overturn the results or refuse to certify them. But I think the, the one of the stronger pieces, too, is this parallel group of electors they tried that was an interesting strategy you know come up with a group of electors in each state the really the seven key states that they cared about and try to get people who aren't the electors in those states to provide certifications to say hey we are the electors and there's a problem with the election in our state so the concept of intent is always central to any federal criminal case so I, I agree and understand that a lot of it will come down to what did Trump really believe. Uh, but I, I think, you know, at this at this stage, at least, the prosecutor's done a pretty compelling job of trying to establish that Trump could have had no other intent because all of the knowledge that was being fed to him by all these high-level people, including attorneys, AGs, etc., there was no um, substitute for him to believe anything other than, yeah, we lost these claims of fraud have no no support, no substantiation. So I understand intent will be central, but I'm not sure that, first of all, would Trump testify is very interesting. It's a great subject. <laughs> but uh, if he did, he'd face hours of cross-examination uh, where he'd be confronted with everyone telling him, look, Donald, there's no fraud. That's not true. We can't say that that's false. So it, it'll be very interesting. 
You wouldn't put him up there, would you, Mike? Well, if it, if I think if it comes down to his his legacy, and he knows that you know, even if he believes he's going down, I would think he's the type of guy that would insist that he testify uh, because his troops, his supporters, I think would expect that and appreciate that, um, and you know, obviously be subject to cross examination all day and all night long. And we typically don't put our clients on the stand in federal cases, but this is a entirely different animal. What progress would you make if you put him on the stand and you laid out all of this evidence or the jury is hearing all of this evidence? He's always said, no, 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 I, I, I won. That's fraud. It's uh, they didn't do this or they didn't do that. He always seems to be able to bat those away with sometimes fabrications or baseless accusations. But it's almost conceivable that he's convinced himself beyond reason that he won the election. Yeah, I mean, he he really does. I mean. And that's that's the rub of it, you know. So you say, what would you gain from putting him on the stand? But how else, you know, especially in light of what you've described, which I think is a is a good approach. Um, how else do you establish that he really did believe there was fraud? He'd have to say, look, I talked to this person, I talked to that person, you know. From what they were telling me, um, I believed in good faith there was fraud, and so his intent in sending missives and having communications with different states and different officials would be a good faith belief that he really believed there was fraud. Because throughout the indictment, the underlying issue is that he knew what he was saying and doing was false. So how else do you establish that other than through his own testimony? But I agree with you. I mean, he's a complete wild card bombshell that could absolutely explode on the stand and implode. But if it comes to that, I'm not sure if there's a huge downside other than uh, a lot of embarrassment potential on cross-examination. So this is, we've got three indictments. Uh, there's this one, there's Stormy Daniels, there's classified information. We still have not seen anything related to attempts to convince officials in Georgia to basically commit election fraud. And to me, that seems like, my non to my non-legal mind, seems like the biggest slam dunk, easy, simple, straightforward arguable case that there is but we haven't seen any charges yet what are some of the factors that play into us to that happening like wh- why haven't we seen charges there why can we expect to well i think we pretty much know they're coming because in georgia you know they made that formal announcement that a decision will be made by x date however we also know that the judges in that building are all changing their calls their calendars where they hear cases to be remote proceedings for that particular week. So I think we can, with almost 100% certainty, say that that state court indictment is going to happen in short order. Does the uh, fact that he has so many cases then in the hopper lengthen the proceeding out for each and every one of them? Do you think that this case is going to be heard before the election, Mike? I don't. I mean, I know some prognosticators have been saying that on news it's going to happen before the election. I think that's absurd. I don't, I don't know how that's possible. I mean, that would be, you know, within a year from indictment to trial. It's That's extremely rare. Why? Why is that so absurd? A year, a year. They've got, The state's ready to go. Why would it take them? A, this isn't all new to him. What's the, uh, in this indictment? How, how does it take him a year to construct a defense? John spoken, John spoken like a federal prosecutor. <laughs> so, you know, here's the deal in any federal case. And, it, and it's different than a state court case because state court case, there's usually not a lot of discovery. 
but they will literally give them probably several hundred thousand to several million pages of documents from emails to voicemails to memos, anything you can possibly think of. And then literally hundreds of witness statements. And then the first part of the case is after reviewing those materials, or at least attempting to do some review of them, there's a deadline for certain types of motions, right? It's it's impossible, literally. You have to work with a team 24-7 to be in any legitimate position to have reviewed all those materials to possibly in a position to file pretrial motions. Uh, but there will also be motions directed to the counts and the constitutionality of the proceeding and all those types of things. So um, I would disagree with you that it's, that's easy to get ready for. And, and what we always forget is the government works these cases up. It's the same thing in Chicago. They work the cases up for anywhere for from months to years. They're ahead of you, of course. They have everything. They know everything. And then they turn it over to you in a, in a big pile, so to speak, right? So I don't think that saying that the case can't go to trial in a year is unrealistic, especially with the other trials that are that are sort of in his in his wheelhouse on his docket already. Mm-hmm. Why do you suppose it's taken him so long then to bring charges? Could they have or should they have done it more quickly? It's a good question. Um, it sounds like it really didn't get into full gear until Jack Smith started spearheading, you know, the the multi-headed monster. So I don't know why it didn't start earlier, uh, but clearly. The feds are known for this type of meticulous investigation. They don't, they don't, you know, in state court, a crime occurs, you charge somebody with it. In federal court, you spend months, you impanel grand juries, you use the grand jury to get documents, to force people to turn over documents, to force people to testify. So they do all those techniques to get the most exhaustive pretrial investigation they can possibly get. Because once the grand jury is done, then they don't they don't have the same ability to compel people to testify at trial because people can assert their Fifth Amendment rights and things like that. Uh, so they use the vehicle of the grand jury to gather as much as they can. And in this case, they obviously spent a lot of effort in, in gathering mm-hmm. that information. How important is the judge in this case? Well, it's, it's always a significant factor. Um, it's most significant in a federal criminal case for a couple of purposes. One, Pre-trial motions, for instance, Trump and his team will certainly file motions to dismiss uh, based upon arguments like constitutionality, maybe an argument like Austin Rage. Austin raised that, you know, this is not an appropriate penalty for someone who was a seated president. All sorts of legal arguments on a motion to dismiss attacking the, not the facts, but the legal theories. Uh, So the judge will have to issue rulings on that. It seems to me unlikely in this jurisdiction with the judge and what we know about the judge so far, uh, the allegedly liberal bent, that a motion to dismiss the indictment would ever be granted. And that's a rare remedy in federal court anyways. And then the judge, of course, will have a a large impact upon what comes in, what evidence is admissible at the trial. And then, of course, the conduct of the trial, same thing, making rulings. Uh, But it's a jury case. So ultimately... It's going to be more important the the composition of the jury versus the identity of the judge. So speaking of the jury, the remarks that Jack Smith made in that press conference focused a lot on it. it essentially, if you watch that, you would have believed that the charges being filed were, were that Trump incited a 
an attack at the Capitol, right? But that's really not what's being alleged Mm -mm. in this at all. Is that a move to sway the jury? Do you think that that actually, to me, if you're saying things like that in public, it actually risks sort of the uh, impartiality or at least the, the pretense of that? What do you think? What do you think he's thinking about when he's making statements like that to the press? Well, that was a very calculated speech to the American public. I mean, that was well thought out, well vetted. He knew exactly what buttons he's going to push from, you know, the American system to law enforcement to the integrity of our processes. I mean, that was well thought out. It really does bother me, Austin, endlessly that prosecutors on the federal level do this all the time. They go out. They hold these press conferences. It's as if the person's already guilty. They say horrible things about them. Uh, they stray far from the indictment in their themes and theories. And at the end, which I don't know if you noticed this, at the end of all that, you know, he stops and says, but just to remind everybody, <laughs> these are only allegations and it's our burden to prove them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. It's just, it kind of makes me sick. So I, I agree with you 100%. It's an absolute attempt to sway the public, the potential jury, jury pool against Trump. And they, and they do it all the time. And it's it's very maddening as a federal defense lawyer. One of my colleagues at News Nation said that it's important to remember that this judge, if I can just go back to that for a second, has handed down some of the harshest penalties for the insurrectionists themselves. And she's famously said that the president isn't king and he's not president. So one wonders then, this is the last thing, Mike, I know we've used more of your time than we asked for. If he's convicted but he's president. Are you interested in the conversation about the possibility of him pardoning himself? That's fascinating. And I haven't done the legal research. I don't know enough about that to say whether he has the ability to do that. Um, You do make some great points about the judge um, because you really kind of corrected me. It's really more, you could say, from her decisions, that's pro-law enforcement, which is pro-prosecution. So if I was Trump, I certainly wouldn't be happy that we got a judge who has really given very harsh sentences to average people from blue collar workers to white collar workers, extremely draconian sentences in the federal system for the January 6th insurrection. So you'd have to believe that Trump and his team are not pleased with that selection. Mike, thanks for joining us. That's Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers. You hear him frequently on WGN Radio and is able to give us some insight to his way of thinking on this case today. Mike, thanks for your time. Thanks, guys. Good luck with the continued move, Austin. Don't call me. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, man. I'm busy that day. I'm busy that day. But he's making money on all of this, you know. Donald Trump is, Austin. Well, I thought you were talking about Mike. I was like, (laughs) Mike gets paid? Oh. You saw the Siena CBS poll. Uh, yeah, it was the New York Times Siena poll of the 2024 campaign. That uh, Donald Trump 54%, Ron DeSantis 17% among likely Republican voters. Pence 3, <laughs> poor Mike. Scott Haley, Ramaswamy, and Christie 3, 3, 3, and 2 and 2 for Chris Christie, the toughest talker amongst them all, somebody who's at least saying what some people want to be said about Donald Trump, 2% among likely Republican voters. Do you think anything that we've heard in the last 24 hours would change the nature of this poll, the results of this poll? Absolutely not. Uh, I don't think so at all. And the story, again, is DeSantis's absolute failure on a messaging front, um, or the failure, I suppose, of the consultants around his campaign. 
And you've that some of the questions in that poll are just almost comical because they're asking people based on kind of the issues they care about, who which candidate they support they support. And you look at a question like like abortion, where DeSantis, in terms of his actual policy record, is way further right than Donald Trump. And even the voters that agree with him prefer Trump. And so, you know, DeSantis basically tried to outflank him to his right. And it's been a total, total failure for him. I think if he wanted to win that primary, his message probably should have been something to the extent of I won. I have a proven record of winning. We have conservative victories and Trump is a mess and keeps losing. Yeah, Uh, he, He did not choose to go that way. About Trump, though, respondents said that he's only 37 percent described him as moral. Donald Trump, but 67% said he gets things done and 69% said he's a strong leader. So amoral perhaps or immoral, but he gets the job done. Uh, It might even explain why the Christian right embraced him because they had an agenda and clearly he wasn't living out their espoused values, but he was getting them what they needed. So hooray for that. Ron DeSantis 45% of these respondents said he's moral, more than Donald Trump. 45% said he's likable, more than Donald Trump. But they said he doesn't get things done. He doesn't look like a strong leader. The one that made me laugh was fun. Which is more fun? (laughs) And those mirror the overall results of the survey. That is, almost to the number – 54% of the respondents said Donald Trump is fun. Only 16% said Ron DeSantis is fun. And that really is the margin between the two of them. Fun. You don't think of DeSantis in those terms. Donald Trump, for all that he is, I see why they say he's fun. He says crazy things. He doesn't care. He gets them to laugh at the rallies. Yeah, and you're not going to prove that Ron DeSantis, to a conservative grassroots primary voter, that Ron DeSantis is more fun than Donald Trump. And that's almost like what he's trying to do. He's trying to be like sort of this edgy figure that's even will outflank Trump on the right. And it's just not connecting at all. I think you can make a case that you uh, have a better record than Trump on the issue that those voters care about. But that's not even that's not his campaign at all. We are joined now by, I think that's uh, Carrie Shepard over there. Hi, Carrie. How are you? Hi, fine. How are you? I'm enjoying this conversation about who's more fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have thoughts on that, but that's not why I'm here. So None of the above <laughs> is those. not an option. Carrie Shepard <laughs> joins us now. She's a Chicago journalist who worked at WBEZ, producing, reporting, and editing all sorts of great content. Uh, she most recently served as the lead producer for the great CityCast Chicago podcast and the Hey Chicago newsletter. And we tapped you today to talk a little bit about Brandon Johnson's transportation plans. Uh, give us your overview, and then maybe we'll pluck your brain for some of your thoughts. What are you reporting? So, sure. So, at Axio Chicago, where I'm a reporter now, um, with my colleagues Justin Kaufman and Monica Eng, whom I know you you both know, um, we decided to look at Brandon Johnson's transition report, and this is actually the transition report from committees he has selected on various areas that are, you know, obviously things we need to be paying attention to during his administration. He calls it his blueprint for the city. And um, I homed in on transportation and basically the overall message from the committee, the transportation committee for this, you know, transition plan is to make transit more equitable. 
And that includes public transit, that includes, you know, walking, cycling, and even sort of easing some of, some of, you know, car traffic, which that is actually mentioned in this as well. But the big one, I think, for sure that I'm paying attention to, and I think probably a lot of people are paying attention to is if the CTA will rebound after um, several years of low ridership and other issues, which we could talk about as well. You said equitable, though. What does equitable transportation mean? The What they lay out in this report is, for one thing, you know, I'm sure you've heard this term in terms of like food deserts in our city. Is I don't need to tell you guys the segregation that in in Chicago, but there are also these transit deserts. We've for decades and decades, people on the far south side have been promised the extension of the red line, which stops at 95th. And, you know, 95th, well, there's there's a whole lot more past 95th and a lot of people who live there who need to get either to downtown or the north side. So um, the plan for the red line extension, obviously, is um, to extend to 130th, which, you know, down down by Hedgewood. But equitable also in terms of like transit oriented development, like you have these dense areas of the city and one factor for a lot of people i know it is for me when i'm deciding where to live is like how how accessible is this to my job how accessible is this to grocery stores how accessible is this to my life and if i can use public transit and you have a lot of swaths of the city that don't have access Mm -hmm. to public transit Mm -hmm. they don't have access to cycle you know to divvy bikes they don't have access to bike lanes, which is, you know, where I live, there there are bike lanes, but in a lot of parts of the city, there are not. One piece on the equity front that I was keenly interested in was uh, in the campaign, Brandon Johnson, and I think Paul Vallis had the same statement, um, committed to phasing out speed cameras and red light cameras, which I think overwhelmingly the data has shown target uh, black and brown drivers and drive a ton of people into bankruptcy. Uh, make it more difficult to even if they have a job they can get to uh, they can't get to it anymore because they don't have a vehicle or their license has been suspended was there anything about red light or speed cameras in the report that that's so interesting you brought that up i i actually thought you were going to say something else i thought you were going to say there was a lot of talk during the mayoral campaigns there was a lot of sort of big talk about we're going to remove cta head uh dorville carter but the this this report stopped short of saying that um the red light cameras were not directly mentioned in like austin like you said those those do disproportionately affect black and brown people as do traffic stops um instead they they talked a lot about easy calming traffic in terms of moving speed limits on more commercial thoroughfares to 20 which i don't know seems difficult um frankly and 10 on residential so that um cyclists and pedestrians are they feel safer um you know and not feeling like they're constantly competing with with fast traffic also um another issue being curbs curb control because of you know we all see how many delivery trucks and other city trucks block bike lanes and make it difficult for both bike bikers and pedestrians to get around about the head of the CTA, if I was the head of the CTA or if I was on the CTA board and wanted to be still on the board, I would do two things. I would start to ride CTA buses and trains more, and I would be able to prove it because right. <laughs> the reporting on that has been really damning, I think. 
I agree with you, John. I think um, the and Black Club reported, I think, you know, in July that like Dorval Carter, I think in two years, swiped his CTA card maybe like 12 times 12. or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're right. The only way to really know the system of anything that you're running and trying to improve is to live it. And if you it's really easy to say, like, the CTA is either great or horrible if you never hop on a train or even if you just take the blue line to O'Hare or the orange line to Midway. But if you're taking it every day and relying on it, it's your form of transportation to get to work in your life. You better be seeing how it works. <laughs> well, Austin, what's your wish list? Like if you said transportation from pedestrians and bicycles to trains and buses and everything in between, do you have a wish list? Do you have something you would like to see happen in Chicago in the next four years? I, I have an insane wish list, and I feel like my but my wish list should be at least as respectable as the wish list of this transition report because I also have no way to pay for any of this and i'm not going to suggest any ways to pay for it first of all the l we got to put it underground it's silly that it's above ground it causes all kinds of problems really better service more frequent service if we had an actual subway and not it's beautiful don't get me wrong i think it's part of our character as a city how does that fix in terms of a transit how does that make anything better the winter doesn't happen 10 feet under the ground 30 feet under the ground like it's easier to maintain tracks you can run more frequent trains it's easier to clean there's all sorts of things you do with that okay i think bus bus rapid transit is really good i think most people in the transit world agree that uh bus transportation can service a lot more people a lot more cheaply than building for example an extension of the red line several miles and then on on speed cameras and red light cameras i think the city has proven completely incapable of running those in a fair and transparent manner and you should take them out uh just because of that and the way to actually reduce speeds is things like uh we were just talking about like carrie was reporting you know things like making streets so that it doesn't seem like you should be going 60 miles an hour rather than just giving everyone a speed ticket who goes five minutes, five, uh, six miles an hour over that. Those are those are a few things. What did you guys make of Brandon Johnson's suggestion that it's a 20 mile an hour speed limit in the city and on some neighborhood streets it would be 10, which maybe is a negotiating posture. But Carrie, what what is he thinking there when he says that? Yeah, I think you have you're on to something when you say negotiating tactic and to Austin's point about the red the red the speed cameras which have nicked me several times i'm not gonna lie i live near school so i've gotten stuck in stuck in the school limit of 20 um i don't think those are going to go away because of the source of revenue that they provide but also because they are very much supported by you know by cyclists by pedestrians they say there are far fewer injuries i mean just last year you know, how many people died, cyclists died in Chicago, I think it was, you know, what, 31, uh, or 31 pedestrians were killed by cars. And they say, well, if you make the cars go slower, hey, you know, then that's going to make us a lot safer. Survivability yeah. Yeah, and that it's how do you argue against that, right, about people feeling safer. Um, I don't know how he's, one suggestion here as well was to make red, Right turns on red illegal. <laughs> that's a bad idea. I, I don't know how that's going to work as a, as a driver and as a pedestrian. Like, I have to say, I you know, unless there's a no turn on red sign right there, then I know I'm going to get nailed with a ticket. I'm probably turning. No turn on red seemed 
seemed bizarre. And I, I, I cycle 200 days a year and I totally get everybody saying we should make cycling safer. But I feel like so many of these proposals are are almost like I can't quite describe it. I don't it's not like a policy proposal. It's more like of a, a pathology that everybody needs to suffer more <laughs> because they live here. Uh, and not turning right on red is one of them. And I feel like if I put my, on like my environmentalist hat, I'd be like, well, how many more hours are you idling engines of cars because people are just oh, yeah, sitting at red point. lights for no reason, right? On my wish list, it would be to make the CTA safer or convince people that it is safer, that it is safe. Um, I rode the brown line for the first time in a long time the other day, and I was happy to report that it was clean and crowded and that I wasn't waiting a long time for a train. And when I got on there, people were standing. It was so crowded. I thought, this is my old CTA. It's back. I love it. I was really happy about that. It wasn't like that early in the pandemic, and it's been a long time Mm. since I've been a regular CTA rider. But If you've been reading Laura Washington lately, she's been reporting that it is still got issues. And I want them to convince people, convince people that it is safe to ride the CTA. I agree. I think that's a really good point. I was interested in why you, was it safety or reliability that you, is that why, John, you stopped riding the brown line? Or was it just life circumstances, the pandemic, et cetera? It was a little both, but it was the red line. And I was early in the pandemic when it was... (laughs) The, the train cars were empty, and yeah. and my my car got mugged, and I mm-hmm. said, "That's it, I'm out of here." Yeah, there was me and some, you got mugged, or someone in your car got mugged. For some reason, they didn't mug me; they mugged the person <laughs> in front of me and to my left. And I'm sitting there with my really bad phone, and I'm th- and they're stealing people's phones and taking their wallets. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, "What's yeah. really talk about no respect?" I got an iPhone right here, but they didn't want mine. All kidding aside, it was very unsettling to me, and I thought, yeah. "Why am I putting myself in harm's way?" So I quit writing it. Then I found other ways to get to work, and now I'm out of the routine. But now I'm back, and I feel good about that. But I don't know that other people do. Yeah, I think Mary Johnson has to address this in a lot of areas, right? We are always in Chicago struggling with this this view. I just got an email of, like, I moved out to the suburbs, and I want to move back to the city, but my family thinks it's too dangerous. What should I tell them? And it's like, well, I don't know what to tell them, you know? Like, I mean— you have with public safety, but also transportation. We're this world-class global city. We we say that all the time. Our leaders say that all the time. We say that to get more money and to get more events like NASCAR and, you know, Lollapalooza. But if we don't have a world-class public transit system, and like you said, Austin, about bus rapid transit, that's that's all over the world. That's a thing, you know, for us not to have that in a city our size, um, that's a then, and if you feel like you're not safe on the train or you can't, you know, you, the, you get ghosted by the bus, then that really doesn't help our reputation as a as a great global city. Be sure good to see them get this better, say, by the DNC when it comes to town. Yeah. I mean, there are quite a few things. I think that this is a crossover. Public transit crosses over, right, in housing. It crosses over in public safety. That was another thing is there's been a lot of back and forth of like, do we need armed police on on CTA? Many people don't feel safe by that. Um, Brandon Johnson has talked a lot about his, uh, his treatment, not trauma plan. And so having more mental health uh, of of, you know, professionals on the trains and having CTA ambassadors. I just saw one the other day because they're working on the Blue Line Forest Park, which is like one of the slowest lines, I guess. 
Um, there was someone down there saying like, hey, do you know this is going on? Hey, do you know this is going on? Just so you know, this is how it's going to affect your, so just informing people and making making sure they know, you know, what they can rely on with the bus and train. It's a tough one in terms of like the pandemic just changed how we work. And we don't all go to an office five right. days a week because we don't have to. And it's easier for us to stay at home and then we can live our lives and everything we need to do at home and shave one to two hours from our, our well, day. Well, I think that's a good point that if it doesn't return to previous ridership levels, it isn't necessarily a failure of the CTA. Nothing is back to levels. Folks aren't downtown. They don't. There are not as many potential riders on a given day, right? Right. And not just the CTA. This is really about the RTA, which is the Re- Regional Transit Authority. They, who oversee CTA, PACE, which is in the suburbs, and Metra, obviously, of course, is in the suburbs in the city. I mean, they're facing like a huge $730 million budget shortfall because of what we're saying, because of the way we have, we have changed. The pandemic has changed how we're getting around and if we're getting around. And they don't want to, they don't want to hike fares. In fact, quite the opposite in this transition report. They want to reduce fares like CPS students should be free, seniors free. They have reduced fare now, 75 cents or, you know, a dollar something, but they, they say that should be free. So that's going to be the big push and pull of if they can fill this budget gap, but also not tick off riders. I thought Austin was going to suggest more bicycle lanes or find a way to make Chicago more bicycle friendly. And I don't know how you do that. And I, and I wonder, too, Austin, if there is the desire to be a bicycle city. I think about that, too. Yeah, I think it's a good question. So I think it's no doubt a draw to a big city for urban professionals that you can bike around, especially with your family and do chores safely. There's no doubt you're going to bring in some economic activity from doing that, but there's always a trade-off. So like you're sacrificing some kind of convenience, usually for parking, right? And my thing, just as someone who believes like in the price system and competition is that you have to price parking appropriately. Like it's Mm -hmm. weird that we kind of live in a city where in a lot of places you just kind of get to keep a piece of property that you own on this public thing called a street and it's free and that's totally fine. Uh, But I mean, everybody's going to let out a collective groan when they hear this. The parking meter deal really constricts the city's ability to set reasonable policies around that. Because if we remove a single paid metered spot to say, you know, do a do a curb cut out or, you know, say we remove 50 of them to get a bike lane, that's really safe and great. Uh, the city has to has to um, pay for that for the next several decades to a private owner of the parking meters. So, you know, Chicago's hands are a little bit tied. The other thing with bike infrastructure is that it should be really relatively cheap to build that stuff. And when you talk about American public infrastructure, that's another thing. When you look to other countries, it does not cost them the same amount of money to make basic upgrades to their public infrastructure. And in Chicago, especially, there are so many politically connected interests when it comes to public dollars in transportation money, you've got government unions who want to uh, extract as much money as possible that goes back in their pocket in the form of dues. You want politicians who want the support of those unions. Uh, and that really hikes the cost tremendously of like really basic amenities, like putting a curb, you know, a, a mile long curb that would protect cyclists, for example, is co- costs ungodly amounts of money. 
And I don't see that in other cities either, do I? In other cities in the United States or Europe, where it's a very bicycle-friendly, pedestrian-friendly countries and cities, I haven't seen the kind of massive partitions between automobile traffic and bicycle traffic. They're just all out there navigating it. And that's why I wonder... Carrie, if we will be a bicycle town, I'd like to think we could be, but I don't. I don't know how people feel about that. I mean, it's definitely a cultural shift. There's also yeah. in like the difference between New York and Chicago, right? The density geographically, Chicago is so spread out, um, so that's an issue as well for how many you know protected bike lanes you're you're going to put in. Uh, but yeah, I think about that too. Do we care about being a bike city? And then when I talk to my colleagues in Detroit and other Midwestern cities, they're like, we would kill for your public transit system. Really? You know, yeah. like we don't, we can't bike. We can't, there's no bus coming to me. There's no train, you know? So I, I have to remind myself of that, but I also have to say, well, I, I do, I'm a taxpayer. I do pay for that. So I do think it should be running well. And that's the reason I live in a huge city is I like the benefits. Like, a big city gets. I'm looking at the clock. Austin has to clock out. I have one more couple of questions for you, though, Carrie, if you give me just a few more minutes. Sure, sure. But Austin, uh, I, I know you got boxes to pack. Austin, are you leaving Chicago? I know, no, I'm staying. Okay. Lincoln Park <laughs> to Lincoln Square is my oh, big nice. move. Yeah, Lovely. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Nice. And can you move the camera around so we can just see on this little Zoom chat? Or, you do or, not want to see what's in this I room. Do. It's, I so do. It's, it's, it's classified. It's completely classified. I'll give you a tour of the new place, but you are not getting a tour of this place. Fair enough. Nice. Okay, Austin. Thank nice. you, my friend. All right. See you guys. Bye. I don't know if you addressed this, Carrie. Uh, thank you for just giving me a couple more minutes of your time and for being sure, part of our podcast. Of we talked on the radio. It's not a city story. It's a state story, I suppose. But the idea that... The left-hand lane on the Stevenson would be turned into would be leased to a private company, and we would have tolling on the left lane of the Stevenson. I, I thought about that when Austin brought up the parking meter deal, which was a bad one. The Skyway deal is a bad one, but now there's this idea that we would, in order to generate better flow. And it's not a moneymaker, at least not for the state. It would be leased to a private company. But you could go 60 miles an hour on the Stevenson, or even 45, if we took that shoulder, made it kind of a diamond lane, and then you had to pay to ride on it. That's interesting. I mean, I, as, as you know, the privatization of stuff like this is so so rampant. Um and yeah, I think that there'd be plenty of people who would be who would be pro that. We just went to you brought up the Skyway. We just went to Northwest Indiana last weekend for pierogi fest and <laughs> to Whiting. And each way on the Skyway now is like six dollars and sixty cents. So you know you're spending you know, and we're like, oh, we have time. We will save twelve bucks and we'll just take the local, you know. But yeah, I, I the privatization idea of that. I mean, the the state is going to say, well, how else are we going to pay for it? We'll have to raise your taxes. Yeah. And you don't want us to do that. No, you but know? everybody's been so burned by the other two. I mean, you can get around the Skyway, but it's too bad that you have to get around the Skyway because the Skyway's awesome. I use it a lot so, of times. Yes, yeah, yeah. We, we, we do travel that a lot. And frankly, I don't think about it being $6 every time because the gate goes up. Hopefully, sometimes the damn gates don't even work. You think for $12 on a round trip, they'd at least be able to conveniently pick your pocket. But, but I don't <laughs> even think about it because it's not cash out of hand. You know, it's the transponder. Right. Uh, right. But that was a bad deal. 
the parking meters are a bad deal. And so having been burned twice, quote unquote, my listeners were saying, I don't trust them to do what they're saying to go that they're going to do or to, that they will do it well. Yeah. That that diamond lane will cost so much, nobody will use it. Or I don't know what will go wrong, but clearly the last two things went south. Or how long will it take to build it? I'm sure you're hearing often from your listeners in the car that they're sitting in traffic. Just as the Jane Byrne was finished and we were promised that would be shorter, now they're sitting in traffic in the Kennedy, which that traffic is wild right now. I mean, just going two exits or whatever. But if you're coming in from the suburbs, that's a whole new ballgame. So. I, I don't know how long a new diamond lane on I-55 would even take. It's funny because people are already using that left lane anyway. You have people that <laughs> yeah. are driving on the shoulder. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh, that looks so good. But I'm not going to do it because that's you, bad. Exactly, exactly. That's wrong. But damn it, they're getting there and I'm they not. They get away with it, don't they? Every they time. They get away with it, too. Every the, time. <laughs> nobody gets a ticket for that. What's your next report? What's your next thing you're going to focus on, Carrie? For the transition report, I think we, well, the next up is tomorrow we have public safety. That's uh, Justin Kaufman wrote about that. On Friday, we have the arts and culture. Um, and then maybe we're going to, you know, obviously as school as school gets closer, we're going to dip into education plans. That's going to be a big one to watch with this administration. Uh, so, yeah, that's it for the transition report. Every day I'm reporting on lots of different interesting things. There's a group that's coming in to Lollapalooza. They'll be there at Lollapalooza. It's called This Must Be The Place. They're handing out free naloxone um, and that's been donated and they'll have that available and educate people how to use it because, you know, Cook County reported in 2022 fentanyl overdoses, opioid overdoses, Mm -hmm. I believe, specifically were the highest they've been. So I think it's good for a group like that to, to be here for Lollapalooza. Speaking of Brandon Johnson, is it too early to judge him at Wrigley Field the other night? Andre Dawson and Brandon Johnson's pictures both appeared on the jumbo screen. Dawson, the Hawk gets cheered and the mayor gets booed. And oh, he got booed. Wow. Brandon I didn't see Johnson that. gets booed. And I think that's what we do to politicians anyway. You yeah, know, you, yeah. We, you really got to be Jesse White or Barack Obama to maybe not get booed. <laughs> Jesse White, so yeah, for sure. Yeah. So maybe that's just that that that, that goes with the territory, but or I guess it depends where he is in the city too. I don't know if he'd get he'd get booed at Sox Park. Maybe he would. Maybe he would. Yeah. Maybe well, there's would. a lot of suburbanites at Wrigley Field, and the yeah. suburbanites did not like Brandon Johnson's campaign. But nobody knows how good his policies are going to be, right? I'm asking you: Is it too soon to judge him? I would say it's never too soon to pressure and speculate and ask really hard questions of our politicians. I think you sign up for that. And let's be honest, it's been this was a long mayoral campaign. So we've been hearing from him for a long time because of the runoff. Specific policies implemented, I I think we're now getting into the phase where it's going to be, you know, we're going to get close to his 100 days. You know, we're already seeing turnover in City Hall of his commissioners, and we're going to see who, which new people he's going to bring in. He's, you know, put new people on the Board of Ed. Is it a little early to judge his policies? Perhaps a little, you know, a little early, but we can still be asking the hard questions of the choices he's made and if they're right for the city. That's our jobs. Well, that's sure your job. We're glad you're doing it. And we sure appreciate you joining us on The Mincing Rascals. This is Axios' Carrie Shepard. Uh, boy, I hope you can join us again, Carrie. It's been fun. Today. I do, too. Yeah, thanks, John. I appreciate it. Uh, it was so fun to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Pete.
Yeah, that's uh, Pete Zimmerman. Our producer, Ben Anderson, also produces the Mincing Rascals podcast. Carrie Shepard joining us today. Austin clicked out. So kind of an uh, abbreviated panel today, but a pretty good one. I'm John Williams, and we'll drop another pot on you next week. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com.